We are starting. Whoa. There's something about that bell, or bells in general. I don't know. Maybe we were all trained in kindergarten when the teacher would go, ding-a-ding-a-ding. Anyway, well, welcome back. Thanks for coming back on time. And there are a, a lot of really cool practices we want to do this afternoon, so we're going to get right to it. Okay? All right, good. So um, I want to talk about an, uh, a piece of neuroscience that's very relevant in practical ways. A lot of brain science is neat uh, uh, and interesting. It's intellectually stimulating, but it's, it's not really useful. All right. On the other hand, there are some pieces of material that are very, very useful, and I think this is one of them. So, in your brain, my brain as well, in a nutshell, when we are ruminating or resenting or fussing or fighting or fantasizing or getting locked onto goal-directed activity, in, you know, often involving reflecting about the past or imagining the future, saturated with a lot of me, myself, and I. Anybody been there? <laughs> All right, great. Not and, since 2 a.m. this morning. <laughs> yeah, composing that email at 2 in the morning. We tend to engage midline networks in the cortex that are really quite close to the midline, as in the blue blobs up here close to the midline. That uh, dimension of the x-axis uh, is the midline vertical axis, so distance from it, and that's given in millimeters. So less than a third or half an inch, real close to midline activation. When people in, a, in an MRI, usually call it sophomores, but oh well, the great guinea pigs of social science, are encouraged There's no to, atrophy on the scan, so it's young enough to not... Oh yeah, yeah. They're, they ruminate. Right? On the other hand, when people in this particular study, and uh, Farb uh, has done a lot of this research, when people are encouraged to come into the present moment, accept their experience, be with it, relax the sense of self, ground an experience just as it is, classic mindfulness practice, then networks on the sides of the brain, lateral, networks on the sides of the brain distinct from midline or medial networks are activated, especially on the right hemisphere of the brain for right-handed people for whom the right hemisphere manages a lot of nonverbal processing, especially gestalt processing, taking things as a whole, which is one reason why the right hemisphere is specialized for visual-spatial processing because we take imagery or space as a whole. Both kinds of networks are really useful. To put it kind of loosely, the midline network, the blue blobs, is related to doing, abstracting, conceptualizing, as well as uh, the more doing-oriented stuff is in kind of the front line of the uh, midline networks. The back is more of the so-called defa default mode, where people kind of go into what I call the simulator and just run all these little mini-movies you know, good and bad. Oh, that was such a nice little vacation. But, or, uh, why did they do that to me? Why did they say that? Why was I so wimpy or something or other? But, midline, um, back default mode activation. All right? Much of our lives 
uh, in the larger context of neurons that fire together, wire together, much of our lives in modern, technically oriented society, as well as in conventional educational environments, is a relentless stimulation of midline activation, and therefore a relentless strengthening of it. Now, there are some people, and I've had them in my practice, um, who can't balance their checkbook. They, they could use a little stronger midline activation, a little more goal-directed capability. But most of us, <laughs> me included, I would totally say, um, have an overdeveloped midline-based set of functions and could really benefit from developing lateral mode activation. The interesting thing is that with training, same study, roughly eight weeks of an MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction kind of training, people were much more able to sustain uh, the red blobs, lateral mode activation, for longer and longer periods of time. Not the usual being with the breath, breath, as Rick said, shopping list, milk, Safeway, money. My partner needs to make more money. <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Okay, for a few seconds. Well, with training, people can sustain lateral mode activation for longer periods of time. So this lateral mode activation or lateral network activation is a a neural basis for, a correlate of, probably a cause of, a sustained, open, spacious mindfulness in the present with a relatively reduced sense of self, which is also associated with greater well-being and contentment. So being able to drop into the lateral mode at will seems like a really useful thing to do. And there are certain kinds of things that activate lateral mode uh, activity, these networks. Uh, one is surprise. Just, oh, surprise. Humor. Jokes. Like being startled. We get startled out of midline activation into the lateral mode. Not knowing. Don't know mind. Beginner's mind. Child mind is a way to support lateral mode activation. Another way to support it is what's called a panoramic perspective or perhaps the bird's eye view where you just kind of step back from your experience or you step back from the situation, take it all in. Oh, right? That too supports lateral mode activation. Another thing that supports it is a sense of things as a whole which will take us into the meditation we're going to do in a moment. For example, a sense of the body as a whole, and then experience as a whole, and then the whole mind process, including awareness as a whole, moment by moment by moment, that too supports the activation of these networks on the sides of the brain. Good. So, uh, I want to do a practice with you about this. And um, it's also the case that that this sense of things as a whole, taking your body as a whole, and experience altogether and the mind process altogether as a whole supports that fifth jhana factor of singleness of mind, quote-unquote, in Pali, ekagata, 
or sometimes translated as unification of consciousness. The sense of all of experience, moment by moment by moment, as a single integrated percept. It's got elements in it, but it's essentially one whole thing, moment after moment after moment. One single thing, moment after moment after moment. Okay? So we're going to do a meditation here in which I'll take you through a practice that's become personally very useful for me of awareness of the body as a whole. And I think some people are naturally really able to do this. I think often people who work with their bodies, athletes, people who practice yoga, related things like qigong, tai chi, it's pretty natural for them. Uh, Other people, including myself, had to work at it in the beginning. Um, I'm sure I have well-developed midline networks based on my history and occupation. Um, And so it took me a bit of time to kind of willfully become more able to just drop into a sense of the body uh, as a whole, abiding eventually as a whole body breathing. So I'll take you through this step by step. Feel free to go more slowly or more quickly than these step by step suggestions. I'll try to offer as few words as possible uh, as we go through it. Um, As kind of a bit of a trick, I'll start you out with sensing the breath. And if you don't want to use the breath, which for some people, especially those with any kind of trauma history, can be an alarming object of attention. It's really okay to switch from it. You can just do sensations of other sorts, or if you want to do something, you could just do it visually with a sense of the immediate um, area around you with your eyes open or in your imagination as a single unified percept with things in it, but it's taken as a whole and then expand out to get a sense of the whole volume of the room, and then ultimately even more widely as a whole. And then from there we'll go out into experience altogether. As with any practice, the the fundamental point is to see for yourself, as the Buddha taught, what what is this like? What am I learning? Uh, How can I help myself keep moving, uh, growing, developing, uh, or releasing? that which is burdensome. And that, that's the whole point of this. Okay, I'll make the observation that kind of as a pointing out instruction, you can see for yourself, the structural nature of all suffering is the same. It's parts tussling with parts inside the mind. For example, uh, you see the cookie. The cookie, the image of the cookie, is uh, a percept. It's a perception. It's a part. Or the idea of the cookie. Okay? Cookie. And then separate from image of cookie is, I want the cookie. Right? Now we have two parts. Then a third voice comes in, as it were, no, no, you're on a diet. Carbs are bad for you. Don't have the cookie. Third part. And then Tara Brock's voice comes in, or someone else says, Oh, sweetie, it's all right. It's just a cookie. You've been under a lot of pressure lately. It's okay. Accept yourself fully, including your desires for the cookie. All right, we've already got four then, parts right Then a deep voice from the below says, Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're off and running. 
So you just observe your own mind. In that, the structure of all stress, tension, neurosis is parts tussling with parts. That was Freud's observation as well, inner conflict and others before him. On the other hand, if you start moving out to mind taken as a whole, the sense of suffering reduces, right? It's a little bit like, to use a bit of a metaphor, um, if the mind is like a pool, perhaps a pond in the mountains, we tend to be engaged with the surface contents endlessly moving through it. Our thoughts, our feelings, our reactions, the effects of our Enneagram type or our Myers-Briggs type, all the rest of it, ripple, 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 right? On the surface of the pond. And um, it's really helpful to appreciate, very much as the Buddha taught, that all mental content is simply a momentary, impermanent, dependently arisen, ownerless patterning of consciousness. And more fundamentally, moving back and forth between what's called a first-person perspective where we are observing our experience directly to a third-person perspective where we start to have some understanding of the body, the ways in which we're bodyful of mind, the ways in which the body is making the mind, we start opening more and more widely out to um, that, in a sense, who one is, in the broadest sense, is the pond altogether. Not simply the momentary riffling as from a breeze on the surface of it. Much more fundamentally, not just taking the surface of the pond as what or who or that one in the broadest sense is, but the pond altogether, including the whole body, embedded in reality altogether. And this kind of practice we're about to go into can start taking us in that direction. As my friend Jamal uh, Yogis titles his most recent book, All Our Waves Are Water. Mm. Okay. Let's practice. So to begin, we're going to do this meditation now. Coming into the moment, coming into your body. Just kind of acknowledging or including whatever is present for you. Stomach digesting, um, states of mind, alertness, sleepiness. Whatever's the case, people nearby you. Acknowledging all that, letting it be. So I'm going to give you a series of suggestions. Feel free to adapt them to your own purposes. Being aware of the sensations of breathing in a central area of your chest. Perhaps five inches across or so. Whatever area you like, be aware that in that area are multiple individual sensations associated with the chest rising and falling as you breathe. And then explore what it's like 
to be aware of them as a whole, continuously. If, as is natural, your attention starts to focus on one little sensation after another, or to put it, say the same thing differently, one sensation after another is foregrounded under your attention, that's okay. But as soon as you notice that, try to go back to a sense of the, of the area of your chest as a whole. As we do this practice progressively, it can help to relax. It can also get a sense of receiving experience rather than going out to get it. You're more receiving it. It can also help to let the sense of I kind of fall away. Taking experience in a more impersonal sense as there is sensation or this is what's happening in the mind. Distinct from I am having this experience. And again, not intellectualizing about these things, more just exploring them as aids to your own development and awakening. Okay, so I'll just name, step by step, a wider and wider inclusion of the whole body. So being aware of sensations of breathing in the whole chest. including the diaphragm beneath the rib cage with the whole chest including sensation in the back.
including sensation in the belly, the abdomen. If attention is like a spotlight, allowing it to widen and widen to include more. More sensation. including the sense of the heart beating. Awareness of other internal organs. Experiencing the whole torso continuously. Expanding awareness further to include the shoulders, the neck and head, rising and falling as the chest moves. Sensation in the face, sense of breathing around the nose and upper lip and mouth, cool air coming in, warmer air going out.
subtle sensations in the upper arms and elbow and forearms and hands related to breathing included now. Also including the base of the torso in the field of sensation. And then at your own pace, including sensations in the upper legs and all the way down to the feet. so that your sense of awareness gradually expands to include the whole body. Abiding at ease as a whole body breathing.
if attention narrows to just one part of the body, being aware of that and widening the field of awareness to include the whole body continuously. No need to understand or control anything. Simply being. Being a whole body breathing. And if you like, in this practice, which can be challenging, see if you can include sounds along with sensations as a unified gestalt, as a integrated whole, moment by moment. Sounds along with sensations all the sensations in the body, including those unrelated to breathing. And then include even more. Let thoughts, emotions, wishes, anything else passing through awareness all be included. As a single unified experiencing moment by moment. Nothing left out, not identifying with any particular part, not trying to change any particular part. Abiding as mind as a whole.
in the mind process, naturally personal points of view arise. The sense of I or me can arise simply as one more ripple patterning the surface of consciousness. Doesn't need to be special or privileged. Continually opening out to and abiding as the mind process as a whole, phenomenology experience as a whole, unfolding continuously. taking a couple more minutes here before we finish up to as best you can be the whole in the broadest sense you unfolding all of you an unfolding process of consciousness that does not need a director or an owner. Simply occurring. All of it.
As we finish up here, you might like to open your eyes as we continue the meditation and explore what it's like to include seeing or some slight movements or to allow choosing to occur in the mind is simply more ripples, more patternings of the surface of consciousness. All unfolding. Single process. I thought we could <clears throat> take a question or comment or two, uh, and then I want to preserve time to segue into what Rick's going to do before the afternoon break. Uh, it, it's interesting to explore this sense of the whole and kind of widening and widening, even as we function in normal ways, uh, talking, so forth. Yeah, so. Maybe two people. How about one here? If you keep your hand up, great. You can be found. So do you have any advice what to do with the discomfort in the body when you're paying attention to the body, the pains? Comfort in the body? What to do with... Discomfort and pains in the body. Yeah, there's a big question about um, what to do with discomfort, emotional or physical discomfort, including extreme pain in the body um, as we do these practices. And that's a whole topic, briefly. Um, I think that there's a lot of practical wisdom available in mindfulness-based stress reduction, those approaches, which are originated with John Kabat-Zinn for people in chronic pain. Um, a friend of mine, Vidyamala Birch, B-U-R-C-H, has very serious chronic pain related to various childhood injuries. And she to me is a really great teacher about this. I'm, I'm not a great teacher or specialist in this topic. That said, uh, what I hear people say, and it's been true for me as well, is that um, there's this process both of non-resistance to the sensation, uh, which, which reduces secondary issues, what the Buddha called second darts. We have the first dart or arrow of physical pain, but if we 
we often create second darts in which we're, we're worried about the pain or we're angry that we have the pain or we blame ourselves or others for the pain, or, et cetera. And so it's this first key is this, pro, is this sense of acceptance. It is what it is. Um, I think that's really inherent. And then there's also a deliberate application of attention to other things, such as compassion for oneself or other things that are happening in consciousness, such as gratitude, or pleasure in other parts of the body, distinct from pain, or a sense of one's own fortitude and capability to endure the pain, or to still be not a horrible person as a result of the pain, for example. I, those, those are, so for me, both are really true. There's a, this, this quality of acceptance, as well as, this is where mindfulness training can be helpful, we're including what else is true. And then the third thing that I hear people talk about, and, and I have had pain as well, emotional and um, physical pain, um, ultimately it goes back to that metaphor of the mind like a pool or pond. So first there's an accepting of the ripple that is the pain. Second, there's an attention to what else is happening on the surface of the pond. And then third... This is very much what the Buddha taught. He was interested in content, but he was especially interested in the nature of content, the nature of our phenomenology, of our experience, directly observed. You can drop out into that pain uh, is like any other experience. All experiences have the same nature. Hearing, seeing, pain, love, sorrow, joy, they all have the same nature. They're made up of parts, they're transient, they're insubstantial, they're ownerless, uh, they arise and pass away dependently. And in that recognition of their sometimes called emptiness, they're existent, but they're empty of absolute brick-like self-nature, in that felt recognition, which often starts conceptual, but then gets more and more experienced, there's a kind of non-attachment to the experience. We're, we're untroubled by it. It's painful. We would not wish it on others, and we don't wish it for ourselves. And also at a deeper level, all, we are the water. All our waves are water. And we are at some deep level untroubled by it. That's, that's my offering. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. Uh, one more person, then we're going to keep going. Anybody else? Great. That's a hand. Good. Great. She'll find you if you keep that hand up. Great. Yeah. Hi. Hey. If there were kind of an ideal number of minutes per day or, you know, how, how, how often does one have to meditate to get the, you know, to reap the benefits? Yeah. Um, very briefly, I'm going to quote myself to our son about doing homework back in the day. Um, I said, Forrest, one is infinitely more than zero. One is infinitely more than none. So uh, based on something I read a while back, I made a personal commitment to, to do one minute or more a day of contemplative practice. And sometimes, honestly, it's the last minute or two or ten before I, my head hits the pillow. But I'm, I'm serious about it. I've slipped a couple of times, but I'm pretty dedicated. So that's, that's a minimal amount. And I think just one is infinitely more than none. And um, 
That commitment right there is within range. Who doesn't have a minute or more a day to meditate, um, including in a very, very busy life, or to be meditative while, fill in the blank, brushing a child's hair, doing the dishes, walking the dog. Um, if you can, stay meditative while siblings are quarreling with each other or you know, you're quarreling with them or you're quarreling, as I have to some extent, with your own siblings, blah, blah, uh, then you know, that's the key. And then you take it from there. And um, I think it's what my teachers have said and rung true for me. The most important practice is the one you'll actually do. Right. Right? What's the best exercise to do in the gym or elsewhere? It's the one you'll actually do. And so I think it's important to find meditative practices that are juicy and rewarding and motivating and draw us. And we feel better when we are done than when we started. And uh, one way to kind of briefly think about this is that um, there's a natural range, naturally, of temperament. And um, to be able to sustain present moment awareness for more than half a breath takes a certain uh, capacity. And um, some people naturally need more stimulation than others. I think of a normal range of, of temperamental diversity, neurologically based diversity, with sort of like turtles who are steady and sometimes rigid and anxious at one end, and then jackrabbits who are spirited and jumpy and sometimes edging into hyperactivity at the other end, right? With a lot of people in between. The tribe needs all types. We need temperamental diversity is adaptive in hunter-gatherer bands that evolved over time. The problem is most meditative practices have been developed by turtles, for turtles, in turtle pens, <laughs> right? And uh, what about the jackrabbits among us, let alone what about people who've been trained to be a jackrabbit or jackrabbitee by uh, our ADD-ish culture? Uh, so to me, it's really important to broaden... Uh, our practices, including to do practices that are heartfelt and loving, or you can take gratitude as your object of attention, or to walk, or to move, or to bring a meditative quality to doing Pilates. Just that, that's what I would say. And, and also it's really helpful to do it in good company, as people were saying earlier, mm-hmm. to practice in, in community. So I'll just leave it at that. Uh, the other piece is to give yourself, even if it's a one-minute meditation, to give yourself the uh, compliment that you did it. It's part of taking it in. Even if it's one minute a day and you say, hey, I'm a meditator, I did that. Um, and that, that, that's part of taking in the practice and it re- just reinforces over and over again because for the 30 seconds to a minute that you're meditating... All of the stuff that you have read about meditation, all of your prior meditative experiences, um, everything that we've said today or that you've experienced comes in with it and, and lives in your brain electrically. So you're, re, you're re-resonating um, this entire experience just by taking three breaths. Yeah. And then the last thing, for many, many people, their form of meditation is prayer. And I just want to just name that fact. Uh, to they, they meditate in, with some belief about or some sense of relationship with something transcendental, something divine. And I just want to, if that is not a person's cup of tea, fine. Um, 
most of the Buddhist meditations, uh, particularly in the early traditions of Buddhism, are named in, in a way that could be taken entirely secularly. And for many people, their meditation is prayer, and that counts too. Okay, well, onward? Okay, so now Rick has the remote control. The torch has been passed. Um, again, moving is Rick and I have done through the day from you know the uh, compassion practice to uh, sort of the mental concentration practice. We're again going to be moving from a an idea that for me is lateral to one that's direct and forward, which is the steadiness and quiet. Again, a way of uh, honing the honing the uh, mind to be more skillful and pay more attention to those things that um, that you wish it to pay attention to without being taken away. So in terms of de- developing concentration, the Buddha describes uh, a, a progressive process in which the mind is steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated, leading to liberating insight. Steadying internally, as we have, uh, as we've come to absor- uh, think of it, is absorption in the object of attention. To actually, if you're, for example, on the breath, to be really with the breath, breath after breath after breath, each breath a new breath, the same kind of sense that this is the first breath you've ever breathed paying attention to it as a novel experience. Quieted is in tranquility, little verbal or emotional activity, the concept that even though your things may be happening in your mind and you may be attempted to be, that your mind may try to distract you with this, that, or the other thought, that there's a tranquility about being absorbed in the object of intention. Um with as little verbal uh, content as as you can. Brought to singleness, it is that sense of wholeness. This is a way of actually thinking about um, the lateral network, breathing with the whole body, uh, breathing as a bo- as a whole body, of being in an, in an entire experience, as more of a direct pointing to it rather than a relaxed back and letting it open awareness arise. Minimal thought, the single gestalt continuously, mind moment by mind moment by mind moment by mind moment. And then concentrated refers back to the jhanas or related non-ordinary states of consciousness. Very great absorption with with states that actually probably have to do with some basic neurotransmitter chemistry of uh, dopamine and norepinephrine and joy and rapture and bliss and a brightening quality. There's a question that uh, was asked earlier at lunchtime uh, about um, depression and some of the uses of uh, meditation for depression. It turns out that the emotional experience of the brain for dopamine is this luscious, sweet sukha quality that is um, a little bit addictive even when you bring it in in a meditative frame. Uh, The norepinephrine circuit, which is the circuit um, in meditation that's run off that 
uh, anterior cingulate, that slide we had with the right with the bright thing in the center of the brain in the front, that anterior cingulate runs off a norepinephrine circuit, and that is and the experience with the norepinephrine is a brightening of perception, or sort of sense that the light is not as dark. The, 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 it's, it's really an enlightenment piece. So, we're going to do a short meditation. If you think about it, we're going to be in a sequence now. It's going to take us 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. Maybe do a 15-minute break, and then we'll get this long run. Okay. Question, we have, we have three, uh, about two meditations that go one from the other. Do people feel they need a break after the... Why don't we take a 15-minute break? Okay. Thumbs the up bo- in the take back. Take care of the body. So come on back at five minutes to three. Good point. Thank you. Come back for sure. Send bliss or bust. All right. See you <laughs> soon. Five minutes to three. Sure.
just talking to Mendius quite a bit, and we're having a great laugh about artificial intelligence. Right? So here, you can see some brains on circuit boards. Going to that website sometime next week or so, I'm going to take it down. But it's future primitives with an A, okay? Dot com. Yeah, just check them out. Because uh, we were really, and he was really telling me more about how the brain works, you know. Because I'm, I'm going to joust against artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm in touch with these uh, machine designers of the brain called the Blue Brain in Western Switzerland, and they're complaining because they're looking at synapses that the brain is choosing to put in a hierarchy, and they don't know why the brain is doing that. That's nice, huh? It's quite a task. Yeah, it's great. It's quite a task. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy Lovely. That. Okay. <laughs>
I'm going to make a little announcement. Jesse, I'm going to make a little announcement so you know. Um, Astrid. Volunteer very often. Oh, good, good, good for you. Juliana, do you know where Astrid is sitting? Thank you for doing that. Well, actually, we get the fees off and Astrid, our volunteer. She needs a ride to Oakland. I wanted to coming here too often, so yeah, right. when people say thank you, um, I often like think, well, technically. <laughs> yes, you're, it, that's good. No, you're. Uh, <laughs> I'm not completely volunteering. Well, it's um, give and you receive. Yeah, 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 yes. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. That's great. Standing, so yeah, I'm just gonna be here. Who's going? So, uh, where like, are, uh, like go? or Berkeley, like downtown Berkeley. Where do you want to go? And I'll just uh, around, like, okay. okay, okay. So, I'll say if anybody's going to the UC Berkeley area, yeah, yeah. stand up. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. No, uh, we're L.A. Good job for letting me know. Thank you. There wasn't a body in there. You know, like I called the caretaker and he said, I said, you go in there. Make sure. Never seen that before.
Thanks for letting us know, though, because if you hadn't, it would have been like that for days. No. But... Pardon? It's long even with it open. Jack is here. We have 400 in this room. Yeah, it's hard. Rick, we have someone that needs a ride. May I make okay. it? Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Come back. We're going to start. We're going to start. A couple announcements. A couple announcements. The first of which has to do with rides. We have a wonderful volunteer who would like to go to the UC Berkeley area after class. Is anyone going that direction for Astrid, who's standing there? Oh, many people are waving. Okay, thank you very much. So make contact with somebody in your eyes and then know who you're going to connect with. Thank right? you, Rick. Okay. Well, any other buddy need rides? What? It's what part of San Francisco? Uh, any place in San Francisco. Any place in San Francisco. Nice person in the up? front row. Can you see who the other person is? You're going to make someone going to San Francisco that could give this woman a ride. Excellent. Great. Thank you. That was easy. Any other? All right. Two little announcements. One is reminder as we end uh, if you want to get continuing ed credits, I do. You know, I get CE credits because I teach this. It's like, wow. No, he, get, he gets the CE credits from listening to me. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, to be here. That's okay. Yeah. This keeps it ethical with the APA. That's good. It's good. So remember to sign out. Ah. Also, if you want to get the slides, you name an email address. Also, uh, last little mini announcement. Um, when we finish here, Rick and I will happily stick around, talk, um, respond to questions, comments, what have you. And they need to reset the room. So no pressure, but it's just a natural process of you know exiting the room, Rick and I will wander out there somewhere, and uh, then they can reset the room without that being slowed down by traffic, as it were, here. Okay? Great. <laughs> All right. So now... Okay. Welcome back. So very quickly, the roadmap from the Buddha, in terms of using concentration to try to... Uh, to work that muscle of concentration to see how far down this path <clears throat> of internal steadied sense, quiet, brought to singleness, and concentrated. So this is the roadmap for the meditation. Rick's going to take us through two meditations here. Um, And at the end, I may talk a little bit about some of the the uh, uh, synaptic uh, chemistry behind some of this.
because I had several questions come up and talk about it. Okay. So this is a concentration practice. This is a way of honing the brain gently and steadily, helping it to remain focused, helping it to become a skillful tool in the service of your enlightenment. So take up your seat again. Bring yourself into a comfortable, relaxed, erect posture. Sense of gentle energy holding you there. And your choice, pick an object of attention, something that you want to hold your mind on. I'll be talking about the breath, but you can pick any, any object of meditation, any object of attention, attentional focus that you want. So relax relax into your seat. Take a couple of slightly deeper breaths. And relax further with each exhale. Deeper and quieter. Deeper and quieter. And now bring your attention to the breath somewhere where it's available for you at the moment. Nostrils, back of the throat. Deep in the chest, down in the belly. One of those places or perhaps even your whole body breathing. And gently apply your attention to that space. I will hold my attention there. I will sustain my attention there. Follow the inhale coolness 
and sensation of fullness at the end of the inhale. Follow the exhale. Warmth, relaxation. Follow the gap to the next breath. little verbal chatter inside, perhaps just gently noting in-breath, out-breath, pause, no more than that. Just sustain your attention on the the sensation of each new breath coming in and going out. Gently nudge yourself, if you can, to become more deeply absorbed in the breath, to surrender to experiencing the sensation of the breath. Be devoted to the breath, renouncing all other sensations and thoughts. Sensations arise and pass away. Let them go. Thoughts arise and pass away. Let them go. Return to the breath.
if you find yourself not on the breath, as soon as you're aware, that's a moment of awakening. Gently note you have woken up, return to the breath. may become aware of other emotional states arising as you focus on the breath. Boredom. Discontent. Hunger for stimulation. the moment, let them go. Return to the breath. See if you can feel some of the joy and the sweetness of this absorption. The sense of skill. Staying on the breath. (coughs) 
feel the complexity of something this simple. All the different sensations. Just in one object. Feel the energy of being alive in all parts of the breath. The energy in each moment of the breath. Happiness and pleasure born of seclusion and concentration. Now for the next three minutes, I'll be quiet. And I would like you to stay with every moment of every breath that you can. Some 20 to 30 breaths from now.
And to give you a sense about moving from meditation to action and back into meditation, without getting up and moving around the room, perhaps not even getting up if you don't need to, I'd all like you to take about 30 seconds and just kind of stretch. And then we'll go back into a... Okay then. This other piece up here from the teacher's seat for the Sangha here today, this this may be a little bit of uh, unnecessary repetition. This is an amazing group. Uh, the The feeling up here for me uh, is that the, when the, the, when I call the, when I call you to sit, the room really beautifully settles. Um, I know many, you know many of you may be here for the first time, um, may not have med- much meditation experience, but the for me the experience of the sangha today is wonderful. So we'll get some more. Remember that roadmap was steadied internally, quiet, brought to singleness, and concentrated. Quiet is, in our culture, something that's oftentimes hard to find. Quiet, when you sit down to meditate, may be one of the last things that happens, at least internally. So let's try this meditation as a way and as a tool for you to use when internal quiet is really needed. When you need to, when you need to disengage, when you need to recharge, when you need to feel a sense of calm and competency and you need to have a sense of a breath. So again, take up your seat. Again, set your intention for this period of meditation. The intention for this period will be to find and amplify and relax into a sense of inner peace and tranquility, a sense of quietness. Take some deep breaths. 
And with each exhale, relax deeper and deeper into a sense of peace, a sense of presence, a sense of being with your experience right here and right now. Starting in a physical realm, bring your attention into the body. Gently moving from top of your head through your neck and chest and shoulders and arms and belly and legs and ankles and feet. Quieting the body. Do that psychic CT scan two or three times. And where you find tension, breathe into the tension and let go. Let go the tension with each exhale. Staying in the body, in the sensation of the body. Let go of the verbal commentary. Just let yourself be in the sensation. Not naming. Just noting. Relaxing into the experience, disengage from strain, effort, striving, stress. Let go. Let go. Allow this to happen as it is.
allow it to happen without willing anything to be. Experiences in the brain will arise. They will feel pleasant. They may feel unpleasant. Let go of that judgment and let things be more neutral. Let them just arise. Let them pass away. Mind events arise. Stay for a while and depart. The ground of awareness remains. Remain in the quiet of awareness. If memories arise, let go of them. And remain in the now. Perhaps gently noting memory. Hmm. Letting it pass.
if concepts arise. Note thinking. Let the concepts go. Remain in the deeply quiet field of awareness. And in that quiet, deep pond of awareness and living experience, observe all disturbance pass away. the waves rippling to the shore and disappearing. And remain in tranquil equanimity awake and aware and at peace.
May you find that useful sometime. I love the last um, sentence here. We uh, expand the range of experiences in which we are free. Right? Uh, And the larger point, I'll just say this then, let's keep practicing, is it's very useful to um, know what certain states of being are like, especially useful ones. Uh, get to quote Gil Fronstel again, teacher of mine. I asked him recently what his personal practice was. That's always a useful question, especially when people far along. What's your practice? What do you actually do? I don't want to hear your... I want to hear from the saints, not the theologians. Like Gil would resist sainthood. I, I'm just, but I mean in general, what's your practice? What do you do? He paused and he said, I stop for suffering. I stop for suffering his own and other people. So it's useful to be aware of nuances of suffering, subtleties of pressure, intensity, insistence. It's also very useful to be aware of what it's like to have a mind quieter or to establish an intention or to know what it's like to get a sense of the whole body breathing. It's really useful. And um, as we have these states of being, that's an opportunity to internalize them. To, in other words, turn that pattern of neurons firing into neurons wiring. Or to put it differently, to move from state to trait. And then as we increase trait tranquility, or trait steadiness of mind, or trait self-compassion, then it's easier to draw upon that trait which we're growing learning and developing, cultivating as needed as an activated state to deal with whatever we need to deal with. And also increasingly these beneficial traits start operating more and more in the background. I was thinking of uh, like listening to music, you listen to a complex piece of music, you hear it really as a whole, but then you start to listen carefully and you can pick out, in my case, your son playing viola in the Marin County Youth Orchestra many years ago. Uh, And in the same way we start being able to identify, we have certain wholesome traits of mind, qualities of heart, if you will, that start playing in the background of the music of the mind, shaping it and conditioning it and helping it. So that's what we've been doing here. We've been been tracking roadmaps and, and operating manuals from the Buddha neurologizing them to some extent, and then most important of all, trying to deepen in our experiential practice here. So that's, that's the fundamental purpose. In that context, I now want to talk about the states in particular having to do with the jhana factor, uh, sometimes translated as joy. 
And the root of the, uh, the poly for that jhana factor, that factor of absorption and steadiness of mind, is sukha. Sukha relates to Sanskrit, which is the origin of the word sucrose, or sugar. Sukha is sweet. Sukha is at the other end of the spectrum, or distinct from, dukkha. Dukkha being the Pali word for suffering. Ka is the nature of things. Sometimes uh, people liken that to where an axle meets the hub of a wheel. De means wonky, meh, unsatisfying, not so good. So suffering is like a wobbly grinding of the wheel of the mind meeting the axle of reality, dukkha. And sukha is uh, well-being. So why would the Buddha, who was perfectly prepared to do ascetic practice, call out joy, along with bliss or rapture, as one of the five major factors, or as a very appreciated factor of awakening? There are a variety of reasons, technically, and I won't go into a lot of detail. Experiences of positive emotion, including subtle forms of positive emotion, uh, increased dopamine activity amongst other neurotransmitters. And as dopamine activity increases, we're more able to stay stably attentive to something. So happiness is skillful means. It promotes steadiness of mind. Sukha, happiness, is also rewarding. So it tends to motivate us. And also, as we increase in our sense of the sweet joy of the way, to quote the Buddha, that um, also releases, encourages dopamine and other neurotransmitter activity that steepens a person's learning curve, their growth rate, as they engage in practices. So for all those reasons, uh, sukha is skillful means. A teacher of mine, Christina Feldman, pointed out that we can distinguish three aspects of the joy factor of um, steadiness of mind, awakening broadly. Happiness, contentment, and tranquility. So momentarily, I'll move through a three-step meditation that's about differentiating. There's a line you differentiate to integrate. We need to distinguish among the the instruments of the orchestra before we can blend them together and make beautiful music. So distinguishing among happiness, contentment, and tranquility is quite useful. And tranquility is also something that we've explored a bit already today. So that's the larger frame. And uh, my own personal practice, I would say there, were, there have been several major helps to me along the way. One of the very first ones was a focus on steadiness of mind, the samadhi pillar of practice, concentration, steadiness of mind. Also a strong appreciation for positive emotion. And also, which we'll get to at the very end, generosity, dana, the giving uh, uh, as a real aid to personal practice. So we're going to explore here different aspects of positive emotion. And then we'll wrap up by 4.30. Okay? All right. So we're going to do this in three meditations. Um, If you start spacing out or if you want to get sleep or if you get sleepy, it's okay to stand up. You can, if you want, play around with walking quietly as you do this meditation or just continue to sit in your chair. And I'll take a kind of a micro break between each of these three meditations here. All right. Here we go. Okay. So the first one is happiness. It helps to recognize that happiness is skillful means. 
It's okay to let yourself be happy. Other things may arise in the mind, physical pain, stress, tension, worry, anxiety. Stuff comes up, right? And the larger container of those other things can have a fundamental sweetness to it, a fundamental quality of well-being. So to begin here, we're going to take happiness however you experience it. Not instead of, or not as a way to resist or paper over, but what is also present in the mind alongside other things. We're going to take happiness as the object of meditation. So to begin with, as we did a little bit earlier in the morning, bring to mind some things that help you feel grateful, thankful. might also bring to mind things that you feel glad about or bring a smile silly times with friends beauty appreciating people who are caring toward you Perhaps awe at nature, a human life, the universe. So I'll be quiet now for some moments as you help yourself dwell in happiness as something that it's all right to marinate in. And in fact, it's wholesome and virtuous. to cultivate the capacity to rest in happiness. There may well be other things in the mind, perhaps depressed mood, perhaps outrage, perhaps worry, perhaps physical pain. And here we are taking as the object of meditation 
those tiles in the mosaic of the mind that include gratitude, gladness, beauty, awe, pleasure, You can include a generous form of happiness, happiness at the happiness of others. Being being glad for others also as a current of happiness running through you. Encouraging the embodiment of this, you might allow a soft smile to come or widen. Notice what happiness is like and let happiness sink into you, spreading in you. And then in the second step here, 
let happiness, which might start to feel almost too buzzy, settle into contentment. Contentment as a sense of well-being with no wish for the moment to be other than it is. Be mindful of any sense of disappointment, frustration or striving. See if you can let go of any sense of discontent. Replaced with a growing sense of simple contentment. Be aware of any sense of not enoughness or lack. And notice that you can wish for something that you don't have that's wholesome and you can regret or feel sad about the lack of it. While alongside that, whatever's authentic, can also be a fundamental sense of fullness, enoughness. As the resting state of your being.
you can recognize that in any moment of experience so many things are coming into awareness. So many aspects of seeing, hearing, remembering. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So many things happening. It's almost overwhelming. Can you be content with all of this in experience, moment by moment? Can you be content with experience as it is? As you rest in a peaceful well-being, as contentment grows, you can be aware that any kind of craving is starting to fall away. Any quality of fighting what's unpleasant or chasing what's pleasant, falling away, replaced with the fullness, the enoughness, of contentment. If you like, you can support the sense of contentment with soft thoughts such as, thank you. Or in your own way, find what works for you. What a relief. Thank you. Contented.
And then in the third step here, there might be a sense that even contentment is a little busy. And letting yourself settle into the deepest aspects of sukha, tranquility. The Buddha named tranquility as one of the seven factors of awakening. Allowing a growing stillness. If there is busyness or noise in the mind, it can be experienced as moving through a space that is still and undisturbed by it. not trying to fake anything or force anything, more of a opening into or encouraging. In this case, what the Buddha said was, quote, that highest happiness, which is peace. Staying in the present. Helping yourself enjoy being at peace.
might have flashes of a sense of stillness underlying or between all mental activities. Or perhaps a sense of that stillness that's sustained. might be moments or more of a sustained sense in which instead of mind being aware of stillness, there's a sense of stillness as the ground or space of the mind.
So we'll take another couple minutes here with this meditation. If you like, you can rest in tranquility. Or sometimes it's interesting to follow the roadmap back up and shift from the sense of tranquility back to a sense of contentment. It's a little more active. There's more positive emotion in it. If you like, it can sometimes be skillful to shift again from contentment to happiness, especially a loving happiness, a gladness for others. Like I said earlier, it's, it's skillful to allow a momentum to continue of practice. Even as we engage words more or get ready to drive home. And 
We thought it would be nice to finish on this quotation and open it up for some final discussion. <clears throat> From uh, one of the main uh, collections of teachings uh, from the earliest Buddhist tradition, the Majjhima Nikaya. And the quotation is, this is peaceful. This is sublime. The calming of all mental constructions. The letting go of all supports. The extinguishing of craving. And then starting to move into the deeper end of the pool that's usually not that accessible in a one-day workshop. So just to be real about it, moving into dispassion, cessation, and nirvana. Supported by and aided by practice and cultivation in those preliminary and still profound and meaningful steps as we've been practicing together here. Okay. Any questions or comments as we finish up today? Beautiful. Maybe someone could bring the microphone. If you leave your hand up, she's in the front right there. If you put your hand up, great. Thanks. I don't think I've... I don't think I've ever felt this happy. Thank you. I'm happy for you. Thank you. So my question is about the vagus nerve and diaphragmatic breathing. It just, it's hard for me to understand exactly what the vagus nerve is and how it works. Do you have a simplistic way of explaining it? Oh, sure. Uh, So basically, as our ancestors evolved, this nerve complex called the vagus nerve evolved in two steps. So it has two branches. And this is useful. This is like useful neuropsychology. So the original branch is very involved with the parasympathetic nervous system that Rick was talking about, that it tends to be calming and centering and soothing. And that branch reaches down into the viscera. And it also, when it's extremely activated, creates a freeze response, the human equivalent of playing dead, which can be generated, especially in trauma, where there's a sense of dissociation or immobilization, paralysis. So, like so many things, it's the middle way. (laughs) Or as I think the great Dharma story of all time is Goldilocks and the three bears. (laughs) The just right place. Right, for the first original branch of the vagus nerve. And it, it doesn't have insulation wrapped around it. It's unmyelinated, as it were. Then there's the most recent branch of the vagus nerve that comes up, especially into the face and inner ear. It is myelinated, so it's kind of quick and adaptive. And it is very involved with what's called the social engagement system. Uh, in which, for example, we can track subtle facial expressions in ourselves and others and pick up subtle tones of voice, prosody, prosody. One of the key takeaways from that is because these two branches are connected to each other, what happens in one tends to ripple up or down. So, to the point about the brain and the gut, by working our gut sensations, by doing things deliberately that support parasympathetic activity, 
that can ripple up and help us feel more comfortable with other people or more open-hearted. Flip the other way, a sense of social engagement, drawing, including picking up soothing tones of voice, like my <laughs> soothing tones of voice, uh, can then ripple downward and slow the heart rate and calm the viscera as well. And you can work both of those. There's a lot about that. I'll keep moving. Toward the very end of the day, I want to <coughs> steer clear of what the Buddha called in Pali, papancha. It's a nice sounding word, papancha. It means proliferation of thought. Let me kind of keep it down here. Um, it's nice to know there are different things you can do. I don't know if I spoke to your question there, but that's something that uh, Steve Porges has really developed, polyvagal theory, and as Rick said, heart math, and other people that work with heart rate variability are into this. Um, Yeah, the temple bell is ringing. <laughs> okay, another person. Another person or two? Great, right there. Great. I'm just curious if there's been research about um, on the brain, whether you meditate with your eyes closed or open with a soft glance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I myself, I bet some grad student somewhere has done kind of study. I don't know much about that. Um, is Rick might say more here. He pointed out once that probably about a third of the cortex, the outer layer of the brain, is engaged with visual processing. So one way to quiet the mind is to close the eyes. On the other hand, there are many powerful traditions. Tibetan and Zen Buddhism very often will tend to have their eyes open, as well as other traditions. Um, As a little detail that's quite useful, it's like a hack very cool, is as we bring the gaze closer, particularly within a couple meters, we tend to activate uh, neural networks that are involved with self-referential processing, friend or foe, right? Eat it or fight with it or get really friendly with it if it's close. But as the gaze moves out, particularly right around as it approaches the horizon line, we activate networks in the brain that are involved with what's called allocentric processing that's more impersonal. We take things as a whole, which opens us into oneness experiences. And it's interesting how many great traditions have people gaze out or up to the heavens and how many moments of awakening actually historically involve people describing looking out or up. So there's something about that as well. You can do that with your eyes closed, but it's, it's more conspicuous if your eyes are open as you go out. I think the, the, from personal experience, mostly the, the piece about closing your eyes is we're attempting to focus our experience internally. And six feet away or six miles away, uh, that is outside the personage. So it depends on what you want. It depends on what you're seeking. If you're seeking an internal experience, and particularly as you begin to learn the practices, uh, it's probably best to meditate with your eyes closed. Um, as you as you seek perhaps to take these attitudes and be more skillful with how the environment is interacting with you or how you would be dealing with the environment, then you can move to to eyes to eyes open and just allowing visual experience to occur. Yeah. 
That's great. Um, great. One more person, for sure. Uh, here, right here in the front, if you bring them, if you leave your hand up, although it's, maybe she'll find you right here. Great. You started today showing us how this work strengthens the brain and the areas of the brain that get strengthened through meditation practices. And I was wondering how you, as a neurologist, and perhaps you as a psychologist as well, use this work in your practices to help prevent um, harm to the brain as we're facing this huge epidemic of neurodegeneration. Um, There is a lot of work still to be done. And, yeah, in this area, what we do know is uh, people with strong meditative practices and and strong spiritual practices have less of a tendency to have degenerative conditions progress. Uh, There's a study that was done in North Carolina, uh, which was, I think, about 10 years ago, looking at... uh, Patients who had weekly spiritual practices, these were mostly Southern Baptists, but there were a couple of Buddhists in there, which is kind of fun. And the, all, of these, all of these patients had Alzheimer's disease. And the content of the spiritual practice may not be as relevant as the fact that the presence of a spiritual practice was as effective in preventing the degeneration of the Alzheimer's as any of the medicines I can prescribe. Um, there's a lot of literature to show that the activation of the stress response, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal cortical axis in response to uh, actual threat and or perceived threat and or to the rehearsed threat that PTSD involves in, is involved in, that that activation results in the secretion of cortisol and cortisol is a neurotoxin and can result in hippocampal atrophy, quite significant. And hippocampus, in addition to some of the stuff that Rick talked about earlier, is your working memory. It's the thing that if I ask you to remember a series of numbers or five words or something, that, that will be running that tape until I ask you to recall them. Um, and so atrophying the hippocampus is not a good thing. It also causes thinning of the cortex. So this, these practices... Um, for evoking uh, equanimity and uh, tranquility and just being with what is without having to uh, be in the grip of my own relationship to what's there. You know, the me and myself, I piece um, actually is, you know, is brain protective. I'd like to offer uh, one comment related to that and then a couple general comments and then maybe we can sit together and happy to talk with you afterward. We'll finish up in just a moment, if that's okay. So the, the one comment I would offer is that um, what's interesting is that playfulness, I think I spoke to someone earlier, uh, playfulness and delight, like a child's mind, beginner's mind, child mind, don't know mind, Mm-hmm. Playfulness, research shows, releases what are called neurotrophic factors that promote the formation of structure from our experiences. 
So a quality of delight or playfulness that we bring to our own practice helps us gain more from it. And it is protective in general. So, and I, I think sometimes, especially the way that Buddhism has been represented in the West, it's like the bummer religion. Right? You're born, you suffer, you die, repeat. Right? <laughs> uh, like the Buddha, the, the grumpy, grumpy one, glum one. But he was actually described as the happy one. The happy one. The absence of suffering is not blank. It's joy. It's peace. It's love. That's the fulfillment of this practice here. And it's sometimes easy to forget that or to get caught up in doing practices that are fairly dry or mechanistic or intellectualized or sterile. And um, I will, I'll just say, I think it's interesting to speculate, what if the Buddha had been a woman? The Dharma, the truth of reality is what it is, but the way it's described and the practices around it, who knows, might have emerged in different ways, including uh, over the last 2,500 years. So in any case, I think that it's important, whether it's based on an understanding of neuropsychology or just practical wisdom, to bring a quality of heart and play, curiosity, interest to one's own practice. I think of one of the senior American... Uh, Buddhist teachers, Joseph Goldstein. I remember him being asked uh, once uh, in a group I was in uh, what he, had, what, looking back over his life of practice, what had been most useful for him or what did he draw upon? And he paused and reflected. He said, curiosity. Or that relates to one of the seven factors of awakening, investigation. So that quality of curiosity, play, trying things is really important. And then that goes more broadly to... Um, the ways in which I'm really struck by the ways that the Buddha just laid out the whole path. He didn't have a secret teachings, as best we can tell, reserved for the really cool people. He just laid it out. And part of what was radical at his time, sometimes due to being nudged, including by his own mother, as best we can gather, he laid out the whole path for monastics and householders, uh, people of all castes, and men and women alike. And wherever we are on that path, it's helpful to appreciate that the Buddha's laid, it, laid out a path and he encouraged people to go as far as they can, and including all the way to the highest mountains. So even if we start out in the dusty plains or move into the foothills, we're aiming for Mount Everest eventually. Uh, including possibly in this life. And one of the things that has motivated Rick and me in this particular workshop is to lay out some pretty hardcore tools that the Buddha just laid out as matter-of-factly. For example, in the Noble Eightfold Path, it's the Eightfold Path, not the Sevenfold Path. And it includes wise concentration, which includes the jhanas, these non-ordinary states of awareness. So I just think that's great to feel that encouragement to, yes, it's nice to be a little more aware and it's nice to be a little kinder to other people. Great. Better than the alternative. And that's not the whole of the path. That's part of it. That's a piece of it. Keep going. Really, really important thing. And um, to that end, I want to finish here perhaps with a quotation from the Buddha and then we can sit for a minute uh, wishing others well and then We'll ring the bell three times. That'll be our formal end. There's this quotation from the Dhammapada that goes like this. Think not lightly of good, saying it will not come to me. Drop by drop, 
is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. That's our opportunity. One day at a time, one breath at a time, one synapse at a time, to gradually fill ourselves with the good that lasts, as the Buddha said, for our own sake and that of all beings. So with that, let's sit for a last minute together here. Thank you all. Thank the volunteers. Sign out for CE. May you be well. May you be happy. May you be awakened and be free. Drive safely home. Safe journey. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.